And um, <clears throat> we'll have the reading of scripture now. I have to confess this is a little bit like reading bylaws today. <laughs> the reading is from Nehemiah, a smattering of verses in chapters 9 and 10. I'll, um, it's 9, 38, 10, 28 through 32, 35 through 37, and 39. <clears throat> in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the command to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and olive oil, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word. Please remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, uh, we just ask you to uh, open our ears and our hearts to understand your word. We pray that you would um, use Kyle's uh, words and mouth to convey your truths to us. Bless this time, God. Let us um, commit in our hearts the very level of commitment that we've read about by your people so long ago in Nehemiah. We praise you, God. We ask you these, these things in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's so good to be here with you all this morning. God bless you. So so nice to be here with you on the Lord's Day uh, to see some new new but familiar faces. Welcome, Fran. It's good, it's good to see you this morning. Um, and um, just uh, glad to be here with you. Um, was a was a great privilege to uh, just spend time with you all this week and to pray with you and the some of you that I got to do that with. Um, it's such a great church that we have, and um, that that's you. That's the people of God, um, and what what a great joy it is. Today's Palm Sunday, by the way. It's the first day of Holy Week, so we're just excited to kick off this week considering what it means to be holy. That's really what this sermon is about. But we're just kind of like excited to do this. Um, excited to, to spend some time with our neighbors and our friends around the community. I hope that you're, you're, you've, got, you've grabbed that one name and that you've been praying for that person, that you invite them to church, sweeten the deal, bribe them with coffee and donuts or something, whatever it is that they like, you know, or if, um, if they got a, a 
healthier diet than me, bribe them with fruit, whatever works. Um, but yeah, so it's just going to be so exciting to be able to do this and uh, um, to next week to celebrate on Good Friday. I hope that you all can make it on Friday night. Um, we're going to have some exciting things planned that night. And then on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, uh, it's going to be a great day, a celebration. So um, thank you so much. Thank you for our guests um, worshiping too. So it's really awesome to have you here again. You always do a great job. But I'm so excited to consider the contents of this passage of Scripture in particular. It might seem a little bit kind of far removed from our daily experience. Um, it, even, even if you're a Christian, it might seem a little bit um, just out of touch with how we live our lives. The things that they're committing to seem foreign to us. But I don't think that foreign, once we start to unpack this, this is actually going to be a two-part series, uh, a, a two-part sermon, um, because I just didn't have time uh, in one sermon to deal with the things I wanted to deal with. But the title of this morning's sermon is Cardiac Christian. Cardiac Christians. You'll see why in a moment. Uh, according to commentator Frederick Holmgren, you all know him, right? Um, devout Jews sometimes speak of cardiac Judaism. And he says that that phrase refers to those whose religion is of a very general type. They have a Jewish heart, they says, but that's about it. In important areas of life, there is little that is substantial about their Judaism. He continues, this cardiac type of faith afflicts the Christian church as well. Now I think that it's kind of unfortunate. Cardiac means, means heart, if you know that. It's unfortunate that the word, the word heart has sort of been hijacked to mean something less than fully devoted to or fully surrendered to. It, it means, in some contexts, to be well-intentioned, doesn't it? Or possessing good qualities in spite of those obvious dysfunctional ones. Right? So we often say, well, you know, God knows my heart. I'm a Christian at heart. And what we're doing there is we're sort of justifying disobedience, aren't we? We're sort of saying, well, my heart's good. And we're sort of kind of justifying living apathetically or at arm's length from Jesus or maybe at worst just blatantly disregarding what his word says for our lives. So that word heart has been hijacked. My, so my aim isn't to, get, to, to, get, to condemn, by the way. I know this might not be like a very encouraging way to introduce a sermon. But my, my intention here is to explain the profound nature of what scripture describes as the cardiac Christian, as a Christian whose heart belongs to Christ. It's the goal of all Christians everywhere. It's the intention of our salvation for our heart to be fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. King Solomon wrote this in the book of Proverbs, if you recall. He said, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe all my ways. A heart's devotion in Scripture is not a phrase that we use to justify indifference. It's what Scripture uses to describe a person who is fully devoted primarily and ultimately to God in heaven. That's the cardiac Christian. It refers to commitment. It refers to a primary devotion. So we all need to consider, and as, as I do, who, who is my heart primarily devoted to? It's an interesting and probing question. It means that God and Christ has our heart, this cardiac Christian. 
And it's the final stage, by the way. We've been talking a little bit about revival. But, but God possessing the hearts of his people, as demonstrated in their full devotion to him and to his word, is the final stage of revival. It's the proof that God has showed up and made people alive. It means that their hearts become devoted to him, to following him. <clears throat> it's not good intentions, but our full devotion and passion. It's nothing less than being fully devoted to love and to obey Jesus. Now as we've continued, oh by the way, it doesn't mean that we always pull it off. So I know we fail, okay, so maybe that's a, a bit of reprieve for some of us. Of course we fail. But it means that we don't want to. It means that because God has our heart, we grieve when we do. He, he is our first and ultimate devotion. Now as we continue through the book of Nehemiah, we've noted it's really not a book about a wall project, a rebuilding of a wall. And you guys have recalled some of the first, the first um, seven chapters of Nehemiah is almost fully devoted to getting this great giant three-mile perimeter wall built. And we can kind of think this is about leadership. This is about pulling off impossible tasks. And it kind of is, but not so much physical ones, spiritual ones. Because chapter 8 introduces the real reason why, why Nehemiah wanted to build this wall. And it was for the hearts of his people. It was for the heart of Israel. That's what this was about. It was to create in Israel a heart fully devoted to the Lord. <clears throat> It's about just that, the heart of God's people and the heart of all people. Now we explained last week, if you were here last week in chapter 9, uh, the process of repentance, what was happening in the heart of the, the, um, the Israelites as they were turning in repentance to God. We saw that it began, they began to understand that they were in distress because of their own disobedience to the Lord. And that distress wasn't necessarily persecution from other nations, but they had lost God's blessing, God's fellowship. And that ultimately was their distress. That was brought about by their disobedience to God himself. And the word of God made clear to them the condition of their own sin and who God was. You remember, you need to know God. We talked about this last week. And know yourself. That's how life is found, to truly know God and to truly know yourself. So the word of God began to make that clear. And they started to grieve over their sin against God. And chapter 9 is a, an extended, lengthy prayer of recounting the goodness and graciousness of God, the sin of Israel, and their own repentance of that sin and reunion into fellowship with God in heaven. That's what chapter 9 was about. Friends, these are all heart matters. The heart was breaking because of the dysfunctional relationship that began between the people of God and their Lord. And I think in times we all have to consider where our hearts at, are at. Are they far from the Lord or are they near to him? These are heart matters. What inevitably follows in the heart of any person or group coming to the Lord in repentance will be the desire to follow him faithfully, to love him and to obey him. And chapter 9 provides the background for what is now the fruit of of their broken heart, and that is namely a commitment to follow the Lord. And friends, that's where our grief over sin should always lead us. Not because we're trying to earn the favor of God, but because we have already received the favor of God. See? It provides the background of the fruit of repentance, which is holiness. 
holiness. Chapter 10, because of the graciousness of God and the repentance displayed, the nation of Israel covenants with God. Did you notice that word in there? They covenant with God to be faithful under a curse if they break it, to be faithful to his word, and that is to be holy, obedient to the Lord. The leaders of this community sign a a document. It sounds like almost like a contract, but it's essentially a covenant. And they're solemnly and publicly committing to obey God. And friends, that really is the duty of the church. It's a solemn and public commitment not to just appreciate God's word or to get advice from it from time to time, but to have it rule our lives, to consider whether or not we're obeying our Lord, our good Lord, or not. And again, as I said before, we don't do this to be forgiven. We don't do this as some kind of like to to express some moral elitism that I'm better than you, I'm righteous and you're not. We don't do this to be forgiven or to even earn God's favor or love. We do this because we have been forgiven. Because we are the objects of his favor and love. Amen? So our obedience to the word of God is not us trying to prove ourselves or, or to make ourselves worthy to the Lord, but it is an applause to the Lord for his goodness, for making us like that in spite of us. That benevolence grace, despite our offense towards God, sinks us to the grave when we really realize the significance of it, but then it lifts us to the moon, doesn't it? So obedience is really the heart's applause for all the goodness of God in Christ and his grace in our lives. Amen? Anyone who has truly understood their sin and God's holiness and the saving grace of Christ inevitably will be led to a God-glorifying, jubilant obedience to his word. We pant for it as the deer pants for the water. It is not a grueling chore, but the expression of a lover in their faithfulness. Amen? Obedience in Scripture, and particularly in Nehemiah chapter 10, I think all throughout Scripture displays this as well, but obedience is demonstrated in two ways, both general and specific. And those are really, we got two points today. So I'm less than Baptists. Baptists have three points. I'm less than Baptists this morning. We have two points. The general way in which we display our obedience to Christ in specific ways in which we display that we are true cardiac heart Christians. So let's look at this general way. The one all-encompassing word that should describe the Christian is a word you and I probably have all heard if you've been a Christian for any length of time. And it's the word holy. It's the all-encompassing word that should describe the way that we live our lives, holy lives. The Christian in the church should be characterized in general by holiness. Now, depending on where you're from, this word might sound a little bit abstract, a little pious. It might sound like just kind of religious. You don't really understand it. Maybe even a little weird. (laughs) Most, I think, maybe if you're more modern and you're not used to, I guess, like this Christian type of language, you might hear this word and you might just kind of shut down or just start yawning. Maybe some of the Christians here are yawning when they hear this word. (laughs) If you've been a Christian for some length of time and you know that foreign language that we all know together, you know the language, Christianese, right? 
Yeah, we all know the praise the Lord, hallelujah, brother. And people who aren't Christians are looking at us like we're the most bizarre people on earth. They don't know this language. But once you get to um, get, get around Christians for a little while, you might start learning how to parse these verbs. Um, but if you, if you know Christianese, you're going to start defining the word holy, right? And you're going to th- start thinking probably about moral purity, right? Things that are sinful versus righteous. So you're going to ascribe to it some kind of moral quality, something like this. How many people kind of go there automatically with me when they hear the word holy? Me too. Okay. One hand. Thank you. How many people don't like raising their hands when people ask them to raise hands? All right, we got more of them. Thank you. Um, whatever images you evoke, know that holiness has always been and always will be the goal of the Christian life. We're going to explain what it means in a moment, but just let's start there. It is the goal of the Christian life. Peter says in his letter in the New Testament, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Wow, good grief. He's comparing our lives to God's. He's saying, you need to be like God is. Wow, unbelievable. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. All your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I don't think Peter wrote that thinking that no one's going to be able to do this. I think that we can be so sanctified in our lives. There's that Christianese thrown at you again. In other words, we can be so like, we could advance so much in our Christian life that we display the character of God more perfectly, even in this life, even with sinful intentions. Or proclivities, I mean. Be holy just as he is holy. So what's the the Bible mean when it says this? Our text gives us a hint. It says in chapter 9, verse 38, In all of this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. They're signing it, in other words. Right? It's getting notarized. <laughs> Anyone who's ever bought a house or done anything that needs that will know what I'm talking about. Then it says in chapter 10, verse 29, the rest of the people all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God now join their fellow Israelites and bind themselves to follow the law of God. I skipped a very long section in chapter 10. It wasn't in the reading. It was basically just a very long list of names. These were the people who are affixing their names to the seal and all this and signing this, um, this covenant. So it's basically saying in chapter 9, the leaders are sealing this, and then in chapter 10, verse 28, the rest of the people are in agreement with this. And who are these people? All who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples. Isn't that interesting? The Israelites were making a binding covenant to obey Yahweh, to obey the Lord, to obey the word of God. And step one, step number one, and this is going to horrify your American values. But step number one was to separate themselves from the neighboring peoples. Now that is not how we talk in the United States of America. That's racist. That's xenophobic. We don't like that language. It's exclusivist. But I think it's not quite as horrifying as you might be interpreting it right now. What's going on here? 
I, I think a lot of us read this, and we, we simply see this as like, if you don't know the Lord, if you're not a Christian, you might say, this is why I'm not a Christian. It's just more proof that religion, especially Christianity, is cruel and regressive and exclusivist. But let's try and just consider this with me for a moment and what this actually means. The word holy, you're not going to understand this unless, if, unless you understand holiness. The word holy in Scripture means to cut, to separate, or to be set apart. Often in the Old Testament, objects like bowls or candlesticks are called holy. Isn't that interesting? You remember when Moses approached the burning bush and he heard that loud voice, and who knows if God's got a deep voice like in the movie or not. Moses, take off your sandals. The ground on which you walk is holy ground. Holy ground. Rooms are called holy in the temple. The Holy of Holies is one of the rooms in the temple. A room is holy. Do not enter this, this room in the presence of your God, for it is holy. Holy place. So when we think of holiness, like I said before, we kind of think of things that are like right versus wrong, morally right versus morally wrong, goodness or righteousness. And certainly that is an aspect of holiness. But morality, good works, Goodness, righteousness are simply the fruits of holiness. You see, there's a starting place to holiness that we can't miss. Holiness is first a distinction, a separation. I've never seen an evil bowl. Have you? This is the good, righteous, pious bowl versus the evil one laced with poison and jutting with spikes. Right, that's not, that's not how we, that's, there is, there's nothing virtuous about one bowl versus another, is there? So holiness isn't always about virtue. There's no such thing as evil soil versus good soil. Moses, take your, take your sandals off because the ground you're standing on is virtuous and good and righteous as opposed to the evil dirt that you just came from. It has nothing to do with that. Holiness marks a distinction, a difference, a separation. So a holy bowl, a holy room, holy ground is marked as distinct from the rest. This bowl has a specific purpose different from the rest. And this finds its ultimate expression in God's nature, by the way. God is called holy. Scripture speaks about God this way. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? No one is like you. In other words, you are different. You are separate. You are distinct. Awesome in praises, working wonders in Exodus 15. And then again in 1 Samuel 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee. There is no rock like our God. See, it's marking a distinction between God and us. God is not his creation. He is different. He is distinct from his creation. You see? The holiness of God is the foundation of the first commandment in the Ten Commandments, which says you shall have no other gods before me. The reason is because there are no other gods. He is distinct. He is separate. He is above his creation, worthy of our worship. So God should be separated out from other created things and distinctly worshipped. You see? God is not his creation. That's why we, we worship God and not his creation. 
He is distinct. He is holy. All human beings, and this is where this starts to apply to us, all human beings were meant before sin to be image bearers of God. Image bearers of God. The imagio dei in Latin. It's a very popular phrase in theology. Created in the image of God. Mankind was the only created thing specifically created to be a demonstration of the virtues and character and nature of God to the rest of creation. The angels didn't get this benefit. The little fish in the sea didn't get this. Nothing that crept or crawled on the earth got this benefit. We were all created in the imago Dei, the image of God. That makes us de facto holy, different, separate from the rest of God's creation, doesn't it? You see? God's intention for us from the beginning was to be intimately united to him and therefore separate from the rest of creation and wholly like him. Does that make sense? <clears throat> but sin marred us. And sin married us to creation. To the creature rather than the creator and stripped us of our distinction. You see? stripped us of our separation. To return, to be forgiven by God of your sin is bringing us back to that holy distinction, to that union with God as imitators of God, as holy imitators of his image. Salvation is the expression of that return for God's creation initially intended to imitate him to the rest of the world, but lost because of sin, but now reunited because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for us to be separate from the nations is not racism. This is a return to our pure nature that all people are welcome to return to. The nations were invited into Israel to accept the God of Israel. They didn't tell um, the, the Philistines or the Assyrians that there was no place for them because they were Assyrian. If they accepted Yahweh, they were Israel. That's what happens. They were grafted in. So to be separate is to be like our maker. Do you see this? To worship him only, which the nations, which people of other faiths don't do. It's to return to our creator and to our maker and to be marked out as distinct. It is to acknowledge that there is no other God but him and therefore our chief aim as a set-apart, holy, or distinct people is to imitate him, to look like him. And this leads to our particular expressions, part two, number two. The part, what does this look like practically, daily? How do we, what does it look like to look like God, to imitate God in our attitudes and behaviors as cardiac Christians? Now be reminded that the people of God here in this scripture are, are entering into covenant relationship with God. Now covenant, what do you think of right away when you hear that word? I know I, know I think of this. I think of marriage. Marriage is called a covenant, and it's a, marriage is called a covenant in Scripture, so it's a perfect illustration of what's going on here with the nation of Israel and God himself. The first aspect of the covenant relationship is holiness. I'll get to the marriage thing in a moment. Much like in marriage, the bride is the only one in covenant with the groom. Would you agree? And vice versa. They are separated from the rest of 
all of you other humans, and you are distinct and have a special and unique relationship with your marriage partner. Isn't that true? You make a vow to them from all others distinct, all others outside that covenant relationship. To be holy, to be separated out, is to be obligated first to the conditions of the new relationship. All other human relationship is filtered through the terms and obligations of that covenant. Does that make sense? Let me, let me il- illustrate for you a little more in a moment. I don't live where I live, for example. I live down the road. Some of you know where I live. I live on Orchard Ave in Warren. Okay? Call before you visit. <laughs> I don't live where I live. I don't wear the clothes I wear. I don't drive the car I drive based on the desires of any of you. No offense. You know who is the end-all relationship in my life? It's my wife. That means that I'm joined to her first, and I am duty-bound to her first, even before my children, by the way. She gets priority even over my kids. She's the most important human relationship that I have because I'm in covenant with her and no one else. You see? So that means if one of you don't like something about me, I'm not going to change unless my wife agrees. If my wife likes that about me, I'm not changing it. You see? It doesn't matter. That kind of frees me up from the rest of you humans and what you think about me. (laughs) I am joined to her first. I'm duty-bound to her. That My wife trumps my work. My wife trumps my boss. My wife trumps my friends. She trumps everybody. My wife, according to Scripture, even trumps me. That means that if my wife is going to be hurt by a decision I made making and it's not loving to her, I shouldn't do it. I should put her before myself. Isn't that interesting? Do you, are you starting to understand now what it means to be holy? It means to be in a covenant, covenant separated out in a covenant relationship with God. So he's our first devotion. <clears throat> and if I don't respect that in the marriage covenant, in the human marriage covenant, it's to my own peril. And I think some of you probably know that. The marriage covenant is more than just a general commitment. How many people, if you've gotten married, went to the altar saying, I promise in general to like you? <laughs> you didn't do that. You promised specific things to your wife. Or, or at least you should have. And that's why I think, personally, I don't... I don't um, Sometimes I let people write their own vows, but I also include the traditional ones because a lot of times when people write their own vows, it's more of a history of romance, right? Isn't it? Like, I love you and you're just so great. It's not saying anything about what you're going to do 20 years from now when they're not great anymore and when they're decaying and rotting or when they can't walk or when they get, right? All these things that happen or when they, when they start getting ugly to you, right? I, <laughs> I didn't mean physically. with their attitude. But you know what I mean? That's what vows do. They demonstrate a commitment to that person in a specific way, in a particular way. That's why this second part is particular. It's more than just a, a general commitment. It's items in particular that define the new relationship that you're making with your spouse. And number one, I just named it, is the priority of the relationship. I make the decision with my wife where we're going to move, not, not anyone else. 
She's the one that, I, that matters the most to me, what she wants. See? So there's a priority. We're, we're committing to that in the covenant relationship of marriage, to have that as a priority. What's another one? Sexual faithfulness, fidelity. I'm promising in my marriage to my wife, as many of you have to your spouses, sexual fidelity to your spouse. It's part of the vow. It's part of the commitment that you're making. You see, these aren't just general statements of I love you. Here's how I'm going to love you. Here's what that looks like in particular in the new relationship. The pledge to love our spouse in the covenant of marriage means sexual fidelity, self-sacrifice, a lifelong commitment till death do us. It means that this is till death. That's why that's in the covenant vow. Till death do us part. You're committing to exclusively bind yourself to that person until one of you dies. <clears throat> That's what you're committing to in a covenant in the covenant of marriage. To not define marital faithfulness makes faithfulness meaningless. And it's the same thing with our God. I'll be faithful to you. Well, what does that word mean? What does it mean to be faithful? Our faithfulness to God in the particulars is a mark of our repentance. It's a mark of our separation, a mark of our marriage and our new union to, in covenant to him. That's what happens. <clears throat> it displays the real posture of the heart. I think most people, hopefully, I'm, I'm, I can't speak for everyone, most people don't make their marriage vows rolling their eyes. <laughs> right? Yeah, I suppose till death do us part. But we, we don't do that. We're glad to because we love our wives and we love, we hopefully love the person we're committing to in marriage. I suppose I'll be, I'll have sexual fidelity to you. I mean, what bride would stand there for any length of time if, he, if they saw your eyes rolling? We do it joyfully, jubilantly. Because we love each other. It's a privilege to dedicate ourselves to each other. The cardiac Christian is the same with God. It is not a burden for us to follow God and to live in covenant in particular ways, to follow his word, to be like him in imitation. We, we are not, that, that is a sure sign that your heart does not belong to him. If you're rolling your eyes when you read a verse in the Bible and just say, I don't want to do that. So we need to define our, what, our, what our covenant faithfulness looks like with God in heaven. The cardiac Christian has a defined faithfulness, a commitment to keep his word. And in our text, there are specific commitments God's people are making in Nehemiah chapter 10 that have a direct parallel to our experience today, many millennia later. In our text, these specific commitments deal with three things. You might have missed them, but let's just categorize them. The Sabbath, marriage, and the temple. The Sabbath, marriage, and the temple. Human marriage, isn't that interesting? The Sabbath, marriage, and the temple. This morning, I just, like I said, time doesn't allow for me to deal with all these things, so I'm just going to deal with one, and then we're going to continue the others in, um, in a couple of weeks, because next week's Easter, so we won't get back to these till the, till the week after. The first one, it's a little out of order, but the first one I want to deal with today is marriage. In particular, our expression of obedience to God is demonstrated in who we marry. Very interesting. We'll see why in a moment. These people, the Israelites, one of the first things they do in verse 
30 is they vow not to marry anyone outside of a covenant relationship with the Lord. In other words, people that do not share a similar faith in Yahweh as they do. In verse 30 it says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us, to take their daughters for our sins. This passage, for our, excuse me, for our sons, this passage doesn't include everything that the law commanded of Israel. Did you notice that? The law is pretty long. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It only names a few specific things, but these are really core things, and that's why they're named. These are things that in the past had led them astray from the worship of God, so they had to specifically name these things as a commitment because they had failed in it many times before. But they promise not to give their daughters in marriage to the peoples around them or to their daughters for our sons. Again, this kind of mucky, icky separation that sounds exclusive. If you're not a Christian, you don't like this. You know, it sounds like a little proud, a little arrogant. Deuteronomy chapter 7, Ezra chapter 9 and 10 expound upon this. This is all over scripture. It repeatedly addresses in the New Testament and Old Testament alike, addresses the issues and connects this as core to what it means to be a Christian. And, it's, and here, here's why. We'll get to this more in a second. Because marriage is the most powerful human relationship you can enter into. And it will change your life. And you need to know that going into it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership, what fellowship, what accord, what portion does a believer share? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We should be reminded again that this is not racism. Any other nation could be grafted, and we said this already, could be grafted into Israel. Any other nation or any other, faith, any other person on this earth that's not a Christian can become one, you see? And then we're free to marry them. So this isn't racism. But could it be elitism? Pious, like, self-righteousness. Like, I'm clearly better than you because you don't understand who Jesus is and I do. That's not what's going on here at all. Scripture is not claiming that somehow God's people are better than other people and other, other people and, and shouldn't be around them because they would be polluted by their presence. That's not what Scripture is saying here. It misses the point entirely. There are a few reasons Scripture tells Christians not to marry non-Christians, but I just want to expound on one because I think this is really um, the, most, the most going to expound on the point of the sermon this morning. And the first reason Scripture says to not do this is intimacy. Intimacy, marital intimacy. Scripture is clear that marriage is about union and therefore friendship. And th those of you who are married know this. The heart of marriage is not S-E-X. Right? The heart of marriage is a union of body, soul, and spirit. It's friendship. That union is physical, it's emotional. The two, you remember this passage, the two shall become one. The two shall become one. If a Christian, if any man be in Christ, behold, he is a new creature. Old things have passed, all things have become new. If a Christian is defined by their relationship to Jesus, then this practically cannot be shared, a shared heart's passion, with the one that they're marrying or married to. And therefore, in a sense, in that sense, they're not one. So as Paul says, it undermines, well, this is what Paul is saying, it is going to undermine your partnership 
And nothing in marriage should undermine your partnership. If there's something that you're introducing to your marriage that's going to undermine the whole point of marriage, then that is detrimental to the marriage itself. So Paul says it undermines your partnership, and nothing in marriage should undermine your partnership, and nothing in your union with Christ should undermine that union. It means that your spouse will listen to you convey... Here's just kind of like practically how how it might play itself out um, if if, um, this happens. It means that your spouse will listen to your convey, your your heart's passion for Jesus, your cardiac faith, and will either be disgusted or hostile towards you because of it, or they're simply just going to kind of yawn. They won't understand you. You see? It will be boring to them. And if you are a Christian, if you are identified as a Christian, to be one with someone would require that they don't yawn at you. There's no partnership. You see 2 Corinthians 6. There is no partnership, no fellowship, no agreement, which is the heart of marriage. Paul is saying, remember we read this in 2 Corinthians 6, what partnership, what fellowship, what agreement does a person of faith have with a person not of faith? If you're new in Christ, there isn't much there. You're two very different people, and there is no partnership. And if that's the case, marriage is a partnership. To marry an unbelieving person is, is to immediately undermine the purpose of marriage, and it's not loving to the other person to do this. So this is more than, more than just about God. This is about the person we might enter into marriage with. To be married to someone who does not share your faith will require, as one pastor noted, that you demote your spouse or you demote Jesus. He said, you'll either live with your spouse in the city and send Jesus to the suburbs, or you'll live with with Jesus in the city and send your spouse to the suburbs. There'll be a disconnect. And this is exactly what Scripture says will happen. Deuteronomy chapter 7. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. And to send Jesus to the suburbs, to live with your spouse, but send Jesus to the suburbs, will eventually lead you to worship the gods your spouse worships. Now often we're we're tempted, I know, to marry um, an unbelieving person because in a sense, is it possible, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but, but is it possible that we've already kind of sent Jesus to the suburbs? The relationship has our heart instead of Christ, you see? And that's why, by the way, and here's, here's the rub, and here's why I'm bringing this up. That's why the first thing that this repentant group did was to pledge not to intermarry with, a, with someone of a foreign faith. And one of the first signs that our hearts is with the Lord is that we're not going to join ourselves to anything, man or woman or anything, that is going to require that I demote Christ and send him to the suburbs. And marriage has such a power in it that either you will send Jesus or your spouse to the suburbs if you are committed to Jesus or committed to your spouse. One of them will take a back seat and neither of them should ever be happening in your life. See? 
So the greatest advice, so, so what, what do I say to this, just practically speaking for, for us um, day to day? The greatest that I could advice, advice that I can give us, if this is our temptation, is very simple. Jesus says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. God knows your needs, in other words. He knows the cries of your heart. He is everything that you need. Don't demote him, promote him. Okay? Now what if you're married to someone who doesn't know Christ? Unevenly yoked. Can I encourage you, friend? Don't send Jesus to the suburbs. Pray for your spouse's conversion and trust Christ. Love your spouse. Be faithful to your spouse. And pray that the Lord unites you, not just in body, but in spirit. Urgently pray for that. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. So you recall this, if you're married to an unbelieving person, um, do not leave them, stay with them, love them. What's to say that your faith um, and your goodness and your kindness to them might make them wonder what kind of God you serve and love them. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand something here um, before when I was describing some of this. <clears throat> if you are in a situation where you're potentially married to someone who doesn't know Christ the way that you know them, it doesn't me mean that your marriage can't be happy. It doesn't mean that your marriage can't have great love in it. But as you probably know, there's a disconnect in something very important in your life. Pray for it. Pray for them. There, there's two more devotions that are particular expressions of, of obedience to the cardiac Christian. They concern the Sabbath and the temple, but we're going to get to them in weeks to come. We're going to unpack those in a few weeks. But let me just kind of close here with some important comments. Now, you, you might be sitting here and you're not a Christian and you think this sounds kind of a touch exclusivist or high and mighty. Um, I, want, I want you to consider something with me if that's how you feel. The call to separate is not the call to arrogant superiority. It never is this. And if you're a Christian and you kind of feel like, yeah, I am holy, I am a Christian, and they are not, right? So get away from me, right? Like, if that's kind of like maybe a, a kind of a common, and, and don't Christians kind of, aren't they kind of like that? Separation for the church is not culture wars. A lot of times we hear this, we hear this part of Scripture, and we think separate means that we got to join the Christian coalition, Right? we got to become Republican or Democrat or whatever you think Christians are most best exemplified, and we got to fight the world. That's not what this is saying at all. Separation means union with God in a unique and special way. Okay? The call is to love the world. The call, that's the, all of us have the call to love lost people. Fall, not love the world in the sense of love an evil system, but love people who are fallen and lost. So the call to separate isn't the call to arrogant superiority. It's the call for union with the king, union with the creator. And this call to separate goes to everybody. It's not just for me. And, and honestly, friends, the call to separate, who is Jesus married to right now? The bride. Who's the bride? The bride are people who believed in Jesus Christ. Who are people that believed in Jesus Christ? People who did not deserve to be his bride. Sinners. 
that would have been hopelessly lost if it weren't for his love and grace and compassion. That is not the occasion for boasting or moral uh, piety. Right? That is not an occasion for Phariseeism or we think I'm, we're better than you because somehow Jesus is married to me and not you. Maybe that has something to do with how great I am. It has nothing to do with this. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. If you read anything about the marriage union that we have with Christ, read Ephesians 5. It's very clear that we were rescued. Not, we undeserving sinners rescued by the grace of God in Christ. He takes our stains, he removes them by the death and resurrection of his son, and he weds us to himself, to, every, to anyone who believes. That means to come to God in repentant faith means you get what you always wanted. You get applause, you get affirmation, you get love, you get devotion, you get marriage. You see? This is not some kind of exclusivist boast that we are better than the rest of the world, but it is a praise to the rest of the world that God offers anyone that same marital fidelity. Amen? Wow. Perfectly fully. The gracious initiation of the call to separate eliminates all boasting and is the fuel of the devotion of all cardiac Christians. I hope that the Lord has our hearts this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are our Lord, that you are the groom above the groom, the bride above the bride. God, you are our first devotion that you have called us out, separated us. God, I pray, Lord, that anything that I said that was confusing this morning would just fall off, but anything that was said that was true would be heard and applied that you would drive us to greater commitment to you, God. God, we thank you, Lord, that um, you have separated us for, your, for, for yourself for, to be married to us and that we in particular get to demonstrate our devotion to you by being faithful in your word. God, I pray, Lord, that you bless our time. I pray that you would um, capture our heart and that we would be fully devoted to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to...